so I think you're right. I think Gorsuch is looking at the policy implications of this decision, and I think Kavanaugh is looking at a very strict, bright line, simple to apply legal test. Not necessarily simple for plaintiffs to assert and damages to be calculated, but certainly for judges to apply, it's a very simple test. But this is a big deal then, right? Because everybody in Silicon Valley is looking for that sweet spot where you are a monopolist and a monopsonist Mm -hmm. both, uh, and you become a unicorn. And all of them now are much more likely to get sued, maybe by both sides. Of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, uh, expressing views that are neither ours nor our spouses, our children's, uh, our law firms, our clients, uh, uh, the institutions to which we belong, all disavow in any respect the views that we are about to express. Uh, today, I'm joined uh, uh, that uh, warning is especially useful because I'm joined by one of my oldest friends uh, and um, uh, most fun sparring partners, uh, Eric Emerson, uh, who's the chair of Steptoe's International Trade and Investment Group, uh, who focuses on China. Uh, Eric, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And I think this is the first time you've ever publicly said we were friends. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll regret that, I'm sure. Uh, you'll be making me live with that for years. You Maybe you'll just edit this out and post. <laughs> maybe that's it. Exactly. We'll beep it out. Uh, and Maury Schenk is here, uh, advisor to Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues in our London office. Welcome, Maury. Thank you, Stuart. And Matthew Hyman is also here in the studio, uh, as am I. Uh, he's uh, the uh, senior fellow at the National Security Institute, formerly with the National Security Division at the Justice Department. Welcome, Matthew. Great to be here. Thanks. And on the line, we have uh, uh, Nick Weaver uh, as well, uh, a senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute uh, uh, at UC Berkeley. Uh, Nick, great to have you. Yes, and finals are done. Yay. Ah, well, finals are done, but are, are, is the grading of the finals done too? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think yeah, that really co- constitutes something to celebrate if you're a professor. The, the hard part is once the students have finished their work and they're, they start hounding you for their grades. Don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, well, I'm glad to be pro- able to provide uh, some justification for not grading anything for the next hour. Uh, uh, And I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS, host and provocateur for today's program. I want to jump right in with a Supreme Court decision that touches on uh, technology. Uh, So it's law, it's technology, it's antitrust law, and it isn't necessarily tied directly to the technological aspects But it's basically, uh, I think it is, uh, because it is the Supreme Court struggling for the first time with double-facing markets where somebody is creating a place where many people do business and they run it and they have a lot of authority over what happens there and an ability to take, to extract profits from both sides. Uh, uh, And in this case, it's uh, Apple having created the App Store uh, and charged a 30% standard uh, um, markup on all the apps. Uh, Matthew, uh, what did the Supreme Court do with this? Well, the Supreme Court decided five to four um, on, a, uh, on the procedural basis that the lawsuit can go forward. So the procedural stance was uh, a class action, mooted class action of um, 
app purchasers, so people like you and me, if you have an iPhone and you've bought apps, uh, want to bring a lawsuit saying you've been gouged. Uh, and you've been gouged because Apple acts as a monopolist in running the, the app store. You can't buy them anywhere else. You can't the, legally buy them anywhere right. else. You, you, you can't run your phone properly uh, and still buy them someplace else. Correct, unless you're pretty sophisticated. And so the, the, the district court said, we agree with Apple. The real axe to grind is between uh, the consumers and the developers of these apps. So cases out based on some Supreme Court precedent. So the developers are the ones who have to agree to Apple's terms, which include the 30% markup uh, and uh, under the old Illinois brick decision. Exactly. Uh, um, you know, it's it's discouraging when you get to an age where cases that were decided when you were a law clerk are now treated like hoary precedents that require an enormous amount of deference. Uh, uh, but that's the case. Illinois Brook was the year before I uh, clerked. Uh, and uh, it basically said, uh, um, if you're a consumer of bricks, you can't bring a lawsuit against a brick foundry because you paid more for your building. Right. And in that case, it was the state of Illinois the state of Illinois was suing the foundry, and the court said, no, 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 you should sue the last person in that vertical chain of the, distribution. The guy who sold you the bricks. Right. Whoever sold you the bricks to the extent that you can assert a claim, that's the person against who you should assert the claim. And that's sort of how the court split out. It was a 5-4 decision, and I think what makes it a, a sort of a novelty for court watchers is that Justice Kavanaugh wrote the opinion joining the liberal wing of the court saying – Consumers, you may proceed apace against Apple. And Justice Gorsuch wrote the opinion for the dissent saying, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, you and the liberal majority are completely misreading the Illinois brick opinion. And if and if we were to really tackle this the right way, the plaintiff should have been saying we should overturn Illinois brick. And the way the justices fell out was Kavanaugh is saying Illinois brick's very clear. They use the words direct purchaser direct. and uh, the uh, the consumers in front of us are the direct purchasers of the apps. So uh, even though there was this intermediary uh, uh, app developer who agreed to the terms, the fact is the uh, 30% was directly paid by the purchaser of the app. So we can just say, good enough for us, Illinois Brick uh, uh, allows this. Yep. It's a nice, clean, bright line test. And that's the majority view uh, and the prevailing view. And Justice Gorsuch says, no, 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 you, you've misread Illinois Brick. The real point of Illinois Brick was to figure out who's the proximate cause of that harm. And it's the proximate cause of the harm in these cases is the one that sets the price. So Justice Gorsuch's view is that the proximate harm causer are the app makers who yeah, set the price and, that and the, the fact consumer that pays. The, the fact that they're passing on the 30% doesn't matter. They might or might not. It's up right. to uh, uh, them. Uh, and so they can sue Apple, but uh, uh, the purchasers can't. Uh, so I here's uh, we ought to move on, but I do think this is interesting. Part of this of what's going on here is the courts actually discovering, well, actually, we've all internalized this idea that there's an enormous value to being the new intermediary, whether you're Microsoft selling an operating system and deciding uh, which uh, um, applications you're going to allow to run on that, uh, uh, or Apple with the App Store, or uh, any number of other 
Google uh, standards with Android, with Android. Uh, and uh, Uber acts as an intermediary between the drivers and the passengers. And everybody has realized suddenly there's billions of dollars in market value in that context. And the billions are there because there's an opportunity to say, I'm a monopoly provider, uh, a seller to the uh, drive to the passengers and buyer to the drivers, and uh, being a double monopolist can't be bad. And and that is uh, a big chunk of the new economy that we're in. I think the the majority here sort of feels that, and and um, uh, uh, my guess is that that's what Kavanaugh is looking at. My real sense on this is the difference between the two is that Gorsuch is looking at this through a lens, as he does a lot of stuff, of microeconomic theory. He really, he, he's a, an, almost an economist first and a lawyer second. And Kavanaugh engaged in what was pretty clearly a straight legal analysis, maybe influenced by the fact that uh, he's, he doesn't feel any special obligation to Silicon Valley after uh, uh, their uh, growing disgrace in politically attuned uh, parts of the conservative and liberal firmament. So that's my guess about what drove this, this, this split. I agree, Stuart. And I think anytime you hear judges or justices talking about proximate cause and what the proximate cause of harm is, and if you go back, and for those of us that remember our days in torts class in law school, Proximate cause, at least to me, has always been code for policy. What is the yes. best policy and who should bear the burden or the risk? And so I think you're right. I think Gorsuch is looking at the policy implications of this decision. And I think Kavanaugh is looking at a very strict, bright line, simple to apply legal test. Not necessarily simple for plaintiffs to assert and damages to be calculated, but certainly for judges to apply. It's a very simple test. But this is a big deal then, right? Yeah. Because, as I just said, Everybody in Silicon Valley is looking for that sweet spot where you are a monopolist and a monopsonist mm -hmm. both, uh, and you become a unicorn. Uh, and all of them now are much more likely to get sued, maybe by both sides. Exactly. I mean, you go down the list of successful e-economy business models over the last 10 years, they all are premised around this structure that you articulated, whether it's Google, Apple, Uber, Airbnb, they're all essentially brokers working both sides of the transaction to their benefit. It's platforms, creating yep. a platform. And, you know, much of the um, conservative case against Silicon Valley comes from what conservatives consider abuse of the, their platform for political purposes. So focusing on making platforms less comfortable, uh, you would have imagined, would appeal to both Strong conservatives and strong liberals. Uh, in, For in, different reasons. Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, bottom line, uh, we're going to open a uh, antitrust practice in Silicon Valley next week. It's a great day for plaintiff's counsel. Exactly. Uh, well, in defense, too. Yeah. You know, Everybody uh, wins. Exactly. Well, <laughs> except the shareholders <laughs> and the unicorns. So speaking of uh, uh, nobody winning but the lawyers, um, Eric, the president's announcement that he's going to do 25% tariffs on pretty much everything that comes from China has significant implications for people who've been buying a whole bunch of stuff, whether it's part of their supply chain or whether they're retailers. This is too much to ignore. 
how does it change what people are actually doing with respect to their uh, legal classifications of the products that they are buying in China? Maybe what did they used to do and what are they doing now? Yeah. So it is uh, it is far too big to ignore. And I think that there are some short-term issues that need to be addressed by most companies. But I think this really does reflect a massive you know, tectonic shift in global trade trends. Just in the short term for companies trying to deal with this, you know, I think earlier on, maybe last year, tariff classification was a big issue. Are you import because because some things got hit and, and the, some and the president was trying not to have this fall on consumers, so a lot of consumer right. goods, most notably the iPhone, escaped. And so, if you could squeeze right. yourself over into those consumer goods, you were safe. into another category. Exactly right. But now, virtually everything is covered, and as a result, it, which category you're in doesn't really matter much maybe, anymore. Maybe you can kind of squeeze yourself into Vietnam instead of uh, uh, China. <laughs> well, you know, and that is one of the uh, that's one of the issues that does need to be addressed now by companies is your country of origin. So let's step back for just a minute. For so long. When people, when, when importers are buying goods, tariff rates were zero or near zero. And so it really didn't matter how you were classifying your goods. It really didn't matter what your country of origin was because everything had about a 0% rate. It didn't matter what your valuation was because yeah. it all had about a 0% payment. And now all that's changed. And so, again, classification, something was looked at. Uh, country of origin, if you've got a product that's being made partially in Vietnam and partially in China, didn't really matter which country before, unless you were really, really a Boy Scout about your entry documentation. But now it could quite a bit. Uh, valuation of the goods. There are certain ways that uh, you can look at valuation, depending upon your transaction structure in China, um, that you could lower your entered value. Now, your duty rate stays the same, but if you're applying 25% to a lower value, then that's all to the good. So my memory is that um, software uh, gets extraordinarily low valuation so that uh, you could still have your software done in China without taking a big hit. Probably right. Yeah, probably right. Other things as well, you got people have to look at duty drawback. Again, not so much a not such a big deal previously. This is where you bring products in, right. pay a duty on them, and then turn them into something that you sell abroad again and you exactly. get the duty back. Exactly right. Ninety nine percent of your duty back. And that applies to things that you make yourself, and that also applies if you're bringing goods in, uh, selling them to a third party in the United States who's making making them into an export. Uh, you can work with your purchaser, domestic purchaser in the U.S., to be able to get those that that duties th those duties drawn back. So those are techniques that we've been working with, but really, that's I think that's the short term. What's the long term? Longer term is for companies to think a you know very seriously about what their overall commercial strategies are. Um, you know, again, as you said, for a long time, companies have been buying cheap stuff in China and selling it in the United States, or buying cheap components and blending them with U.S. components and selling them in the United States. Those days are gone, right. because even if the United States and China were to reach a deal tomorrow, which they're not, but even if they were. There's no reason that this can't happen again. Oh, it could happen, yes, yeah, six times, right? So Absolutely you, right. You, you have to say, okay, the, even if I thought they were going to go away tomorrow, there's at least a 40% chance they'll right. be back. So I have to assume there's a penalty Absolutely. of 10% uh, for uh, sourcing in China. Exactly right. And not only that, but you know, it's, it's possible that you might not be able to get the goods from China that you really want. And so I think companies need to look at two things. First of all, diversifying their supply chains. Uh, again, you know, a tremendous dominance uh, and reliance on China over the years that I think is now 
become questionable. And second, uh, increased localization. So whether that is buying in the making in the U.S. for U.S. or making in China for China, because, of course, China has retaliated against the United States. The bottom line question, and it's a question for every company, is how much money do you want to spend to protect your supply chain? That's the fundamental question. It's going to be a different number for every company. Presumably, everyone's operating at their most efficient right now. And we, I think, are going to have companies are going to have to start thinking about moving to a less efficient model efficient today. So the question is, how much more are you going to spend? And that's a hard question. Well, and I think a lot of this was cost of switching. Yes. That was pretty significant. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now when you look to the future, you say all the trends for certain kinds of products are moving in a bad direction. I'm going to pay 25% more. Plus, uh, the workers are not cheap in China anymore. Nope. That's a mid, it's a middle-income country. Right. And uh, I've been staying there because the people, even they, though they're more expensive, they have learned to do this better than the people that I would uh, teach to do it in Bangladesh. And not only that, but the infrastructure. There's, China is unique in, the, in terms of the infrastructure that it has. Mm-hmm. If you needed 30,000 medium navy blue sweaters in three weeks, there's only one place in the world to get that. Right. Um, and so you can talk about comparative labor rates, but the reality is they have transportation infrastructure that, uh, that really can't be beat. The other thing is that as you, know, as you are thinking about going to Malaysia to seat that other supplier to replace you know, the one that you'd be leaving behind in China, so is every one of your competitors. And the capacity in these other countries like Malaysia, like Thailand, like Indonesia, simply isn't there either. So you're going to be fighting for their, for their space on their factory floor just as much as your competitors are. So it is a very challenging environment, and it's not going to go away. This is really anyone who thinks this is a passing storm, I think, is wrong. All right. Okay. So that's all good news, I'm sure. Maury, uh, while, while things are getting ugly for people who buy in China, they're also getting ugly for people who do business in China. Uh, uh, what is the cyber crackdown that we're hearing about with uh, the Chinese? Well, there was a cybersecurity law that came in 2017, and it has quite detailed rules that must be implemented on cyber protection by a, a wide variety of economic actors in China. And it's been rumored that those are being strengthened. And it's been reported that there are foreign companies being investigated for violations of these rules. So this is this and, was the, the this was the worry. When the, when the law came through, everybody said, well, this is kind of almost impossible to comply with or extraordinarily difficult to comply with. Uh, uh, but in the past, when we have complained as Western companies, uh, we've gotten patted on the head and told not to worry about it. And in fact, the main force of the law has not fallen on uh, valuable Western technology companies. And what you're saying, it sounds like, is uh, we can't count on that to continue here. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, it it won't be enforced only against Western companies. Um, The reports are that it's also being enforced against Chinese companies. But like all of these laws in China, they're just a lot more of a hassle for Western companies than Chinese companies, both I'd say the two main reasons are lack of knowledge of the environment and perhaps even more important, uh, lack of the right connections within China with uh, government and party officials uh, to get the right decisions that you need. And uh, so this could be a real hassle. Okay. 
Uh, let me ask this. Um, I hear this. I have yet to see it in uh, the press that uh, there is also an informal stall in place on litigation by Western companies that if they are pursuing cases against Chinese companies, there's some kind of central directive that says, don't dock at anything for those guys. And this is part of the retaliation uh, uh, that uh, Eric mentioned. Uh, maybe even a, a directive that says, well, if you have to do something, make sure that the Western company loses. Uh, this is this is right now, I would characterize it as a rumor, but a plausible one. Uh, uh, I don't know if you've seen any uh, any indication that that's the case. I haven't seen anything specifically in the litigation space, and, and Eric may know more about this. I have been involved recently in a repatriation of currency matter for a foreign investor in China, and it's kind of par for the course that you just don't get treated as well as a foreign entity operating in China. One thing that I thought was also interesting about this cyber crackdown is I think last time I was on the podcast, we talked about the theme of information security law being used as a trade and industrial policy tool by quite a few countries. And this seems to me to be another instance of it. Yep. So we're not done yet with China uh, and uh, um, uh, the tit for tat for tit for tat uh, uh, in this uh, debate. But uh, uh, the president has issued an, a remarkable executive order uh, under the International Economic Emergency Powers Act, which is basically a license to write your own uh, statute. Uh, and indeed, uh, the presidents before Trump have written their own statutes, basically giving the president authority to say about any piece of technology that uh, comes from an adversary nation, uh, nope, can't sell it, can't use it in the United States. If this had happened five years ago, there would have been a howl about it. Uh, uh, now, almost, uh, it just passes as one more brick in the wall. Um, Nick, uh, uh, where do you see this going? Ugh, bad. I think of it as one more touch from fecal mitis on what was initially a good policy. <laughs> so... The problem is, is we really don't want Huawei and other Chinese supplied systems in our telecommunications infrastructure, period, full stop. It's a different matter, however, when it comes to, say, the cell phones themselves. People buying cheap Android are not targets of Chinese intelligence, and therefore Huawei is just as good. And finally, we don't want to ban selling to Huawei. They are a good company. They've got stuff all over the world. And as long as you don't mind having Chinese intelligence on easy mode, even their telecommunications kit is great. And this is quickly turning into something more akin to what the deal was with ZTE, where the company is being sanctioned and the intent seems to be to stop to cut them off from U.S. technology altogether. So both Xilinx and Google are apparently cutting ties in terms of being a supplier to Huawei. And this is going to have a large amount of collateral damage, both for the rest of the world and for U.S. interests. So I think there's two a, things going on here. I, I, I agree with you that uh, there is an, a, an order out that uh, has the effect of saying uh, uh, 
Uh, U.S. companies can't sell to Huawei because of uh, uh, violations of the export uh, uh, laws. Uh, it was sort of applying uh, the ZTE rules to uh, to Huawei. Uh, that's that 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 is pending, uh, and um, Huawei has said, "Well, we've stored up a lot of U.S. technology, and we can uh, handle it." Uh, but this new executive order actually gives the president the authority to say there's uh, Kaspersky is a product made by a, uh, an adversary country. And not only is the government not going to buy it, we're not going to let Americans buy it. We're going to say it can't be sold in the United States. Uh, that's a that's a pretty sweeping authority. They haven't used it. Right. This is just creating a framework for doing that. But I think it's a uh, potentially part of the effort to create what amounts to true uh, IT infrastructures. And I think in the long run, that's not good for us. And related, what I would look for is if there's talk about Lenovo being caught up in this, Mm -hmm. that would be a very big deal. And it really just deliberately conflates the different risks that risks for most people from Chinese government spying is non-existent. So, hey, it's fine. Same with Russian spying. For a lot of people, I think Kaspersky is great software. I so won't touch it, I, I, but I, that's I, just... I, I agree with you that that is one way of looking at this. On the other hand, there are also markets where there's only room for three or four competitors. And uh, if you want to have an alternative to a product that you don't trust, you have to create a market. And the U.S. government by itself is not a big enough market. Uh, uh, And so saying, you know, we're just not going to allow this product to be sold in the United States. You're going to have to find some more trustworthy alternative, and we've just created a market for trustworthy alternatives uh, that's much bigger than just uh, the the government. Uh, It's not a a crazy approach to the growing concentration of power in a wide variety of products. Yes, but you need to take a lot more care. So as I said, I'm going to give you that one. I will will grant you that uh, fine motor skills in policymaking have not been this administration's strong point. (laughs) And what ends up happening is when you have so much potential collateral damage and there's huge collateral damage, you start to default to better not. And the other thing is, well, is you know, look, it, 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 he passed this thing saying, here's the structure for decision making. There is now authority to do this. They haven't done anything yet. So uh, give them at least the opportunity to, to screw up a couple of times before you say they can't do it right. Except the problem is, is this administration has already shown that it uses the notion of emergency to do hugely disruptive trade things like, oh, say, steel and aluminum, now talking about car parts, all in the name of national security using basically these same mechanisms. And one of the things that worries me is that if Congress finally develops a spine and starts to roll back these ridiculous emergency authorities that have been constrained by uh, custom rather than law, that anything good will get destroyed that 
gets done because this was done using these sweeping emergency authorities. Well, maybe. I, I have to say, uh, maybe Eric will back me up on this. Uh, IEPA, the International Economic and Emergency Powers Act, uh, has been used in astonishingly sweeping ways by every president since, uh, I don't know, Carter probably. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. It's a, it's a handy little Swiss Army knife uh, for any executive who's facing a, an international sort of emergency of any variety. It's, it's amazing. But what my point is, is that we no longer have the good faith assumption going on. However, for anything to happen, Congress would have to get a spine. And what are the odds of that? Uh, you know, I, I don't think they've, they've, they've successfully transplanted them yet. Uh, but <laughs> speaking about growing a spine, the UK Supreme Court, this is the problem with call, the, 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 the UK called their top court, which used to be a, a House of Lords uh, uh, committee, uh, uh, the Supreme Court sometime uh, 10, 15 years ago. And it, it, went to their, yeah, it went to their head. They've now... Parliament passes a law says uh, we're going to have oversight for our intelligence community by this tribunal, and it will not be subject to judicial review when it decides that the uh, um, intelligence community is acting in accordance with law or not in accordance with law. And the Supreme, the quote unquote Supreme Court of the UK says, "Oh yeah, but that doesn't mean I, we can't review it. We're just going to review it and decide whether it's right or wrong." Uh, sort of an astonishing decision, and and obviously not without dissent. Well, it's um, a very important application of constitutional principle, which is interesting in the UK because we don't have a written constitution here, uh, but there still is a belief that there is a constitution, which is somewhat subject to court interpretation because it is it isn't it wasn't written down. This c case was about a challenge by Privacy International and Liberty to thematic warrants issued by GCHQ, which allowed access to communications re relating to a wide variety of property. And as you said, this row, you know, the lower court said, well, the ouster of review of the decision on the uh, investigatory powers tribunal of these warrants by parliament is valid. Uh, the Supreme Court disagreed, and the reasoning largely related to the fact that you can't oust courts of review. Jesus, that, you know, it's it's almost worse not to have a written constitution because then it's whatever the court, the Supreme Court says it is. Uh, we would be yeah, in deep absolutely. trouble if the Supreme Court of the United States could just say, "Yeah, we're we're writing the constitution as well as interpreting it." Well, some of us, you know, think that the Supreme Court sometimes does that, both on the left and the right, even with a written court constitution. But absolutely, it happens much more over here because while they say there's a constitution, it's kind of whatever they say it is. So the, the upshot here is that uh, GCHQ is going to get much more scrutiny from judges who know much less about the intelligence community and are much more subject to um, uh, lobbying in the written media uh, that uh, uh, are consumed by the the great and the good of uh, the UK. Is that more or less where we stand? Yeah, and I think there will be some complications because the Investigatory Powers Tribunal was set up as a quasi-secret tribunal um, to handle these kind of cases. Now, a lot of people don't like that. But there's going to be some complicated issues regarding secret evidence uh, and so forth. 
And um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, there was like a, a sentence in this decision saying, oh, don't, don't worry about that. We have plenty of ways to handle uh, confidential information. Uh, don't worry your sweet head about uh, the fact that we'll be reviewing this. So lots of pain ahead for GCHQ. And it may be that Parliament, uh, which does have the last word here at the end of the day, may say, you know, maybe we don't really need this tribunal if that's what comes with it. And instead, we'll have advisory review by uh, former uh, judges who will just give us advice and then the parliament will act on it. Uh, they certainly could fix this if they wanted to. They could do it. And it's not just GCHQ. It's MI5 and MI6. And it's a lot of ordinary law enforcement stuff as well. So, Nick, this was just an incredible week for the mightiest names in computing just screwing up royally in terms of cybersecurity. Microsoft had had a, uh, a, a flaw that they even had to fix XP on, so you know it was bad. And Intel has a whole other set of uh, um, ways in which their architecture can be exploited. And Cisco has a, a flaw, which if I understand it right, can't be fixed, uh, in which basically their secure enclave is um, can be skipped in in boot up is, is, is am i right that we just had a disastrous week in cybersecurity i'd say more like uh disastrously entertaining but <laughs> let's put some pin in some things okay so the intel bugs are interesting from a technical viewpoint but what it comes down to is this is yet another example of vulnerabilities arising from trying to do cheap protection barriers and so the net result is this is interesting. Apply your patches. Yeah, You'll and, see and, a little performance degrading. No yeah, big deal. I, I, it sounded like it. it sounded as though Intel had already fixed some of these things in their latest uh, uh, chip. So they're not unfixable, probably. It's different. They are fundamental, but there is a fundamental fix that is just unfortunately costly. Any context switch, you have to flush all state. And as long as you do that, these class of bugs go away. So it means, it means, means we're going to lose speed probably, uh, uh, which was sort of how we got here is sacrificing everything for speed. But tell us yeah. about Cisco because this, this, this sounded to me much more serious than any of the others. Yes, this is incredible brain damage on Cisco's part, but it may or may not be partially fixable. So the idea is, is Cisco has a hardware root of trust in their systems done on an FPGA. That's that's good. Yeah, this, is, this is like everybody has them now. That. These are these are enclaves yeah. that everybody has. Uh, ARM has them. Uh, uh, Apple has them. Uh, Intel has them. And they implemented their enclave on an FPGA because they didn't want to build a custom chip for it, and they wanted to be able to update it. That's all good. The problem is, is they cheaped out and did not buy an FPGA that included the cryptographic protections so that you know the FPGA will only load the code that it is supposed to load. And from within the software in the host OS, you can rewrite the program that the FPGA loads. Oh, my God. So, so you can just blow the gates uh, in a new way and uh, it, will, uh, it will do your bidding rather than the bidding of the people who designed the system. 
you got it. Now, they may be able to fix the ability to do this remotely because my assumption is the path for changing the FPGA configuration does go through the FPGA. So you could do an FPGA patch that would um, at least allow against remote hacking of the root of trust, but it still solves nothing for the root of trust when the NSA intercepts your box in transit and just, well, the NSA thanks uh, Cisco for their gross incompetence. So I, I'm thinking about this. Uh, yes, you, can, you could probably fix that. I can't believe it's a patch that the CIO is going to want to apply, right? Just uh, here's the patch. We're going to blow gates on your F field programmable uh, uh, array and just, you know, do these things and wait and see if smoke emerges from the uh, the machine. This has to work. No, but you, can you do it? This uh, is the, yeah, these are the FPGAs these days. It's field programmable. It's reprogrammable. You aren't doing any harm by updating your firmware on it. Okay. But the most interesting one, and stick a pin in it, is the Microsoft vulnerability. This is one of those God mode Windows exploits that really scare security professionals because they can be used to create widespread worms. And it was reported to Microsoft by British GCHQ. And so I think one of three things happened. One, GCHQ discovered it, did their equities process, decided to just disclose it to Microsoft. Yep. Two, GCHQ discovered it, did their equities process, go, this is a God mode exploit, we need to use it, and then somehow discovered that some adversary had discovered it, and that changed the equities, and they reported to Microsoft. Yep. Or three, somebody else was using it, GCHQ discovered it, reported it to Microsoft to burn an adversary's tool. So two out of three all, of those are pretty troubling because it means that there's an adversary out there who's been using it to, uh, to, uh, to break into systems. Except that I'd say all three cases are not troubling. All three cases say that the system worked because GCHQ did the right thing as conditions were changing. And more importantly, if it's case two or case three, the adversary in question knows that GCHQ knows. Yep. So there would actually be no harm to sources and methods for GCHQ to reveal to the public which one of these three cases it was. Because in any one of those three cases, they did the right decisions. And it would be really good for a Five Eyes intelligence agency to go on record with their process in this case, because every one of those three possibilities is GCHQ doing the right thing. GCHQ to the rescue. Okay. Um, the other um, equities process that was in the paper a lot has been the uh, the WhatsApp uh, uh bug or exploit uh, that uh, has been attributed to NSO Group, which is a big Israeli uh, uh, exploit uh, company. Uh, um, and apparently, all you had to do was call somebody uh, using their WhatsApp, uh, using their phone number, and uh, uh, you could compromise their phone and then delete the fact that you called them from their 
call uh, list, uh, and they could not even tell whether they'd been attacked. Um, this is, uh, you know, uh, this bug has been fixed, apparently, uh, and if your phone's up to date, uh, it can't be done. Um, and so it looks as though the main fallout from this is um, efforts to blame NSO for the fact that uh, uh, somebody, probably the Saudis, but I don't know that we know, uh, has been um, using this to get access to um, human rights and uh, groups and their lawyers. Let's face it. The problem is, is the NSO group's defense is we're in the Werner von Braun school of rocketry. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? That's <laughs> not my department. And the thing is, is the target identified with this attack was apparently a lawyer specifically involved in investigating NSO's own, uh, their, the abuse of NSO's stuff. And for example, the last time I had a run in with these guys, I spent $250 to provide a iPhone to capture their exploit. And the reason why my colleague Bill Marzak was interested in tracking this is because the exploit was sent to Ahmed Mansour, who's a civil rights attorney in um, the United Arab Emirates. So the problem is, is NSO Group knows their software is being misused and doesn't seem to care. Yeah, it's hard. To, uh, and I, I can't blame them for what their customers do when their customers are sovereign governments. A little hard to say we won't sell this to you unless you get the permission of an Israeli company uh, before you decide on your uh, uh, national uh, uh, targets. But and, you know, as among the governments that you could sell this stuff to the people who've gotten them in the most trouble are the Mexican and the Saudi Arabian governments who four years ago you wouldn't have said were uh, even in the bottom half for human rights uh, uh, abuses uh, uh, among the nations of the world. So uh, it's uh, – OK, maybe Saudi. I would Saudi. not say that about Saudi Arabia. <laughs> okay, you're right. All right. But that was before Khashoggi uh, um, was, uh, was killed in the uh, consulate. But still, you're right. I, it, it is – they have – said they can do more than just decide what they sell, that they can stop selling if people are abusing their product. And there isn't much sign that they've done that. Uh, so they're going to take more and more heat. I, I'm, I'm for sure uh, agree with that. All right. We are running low on time. Actually, we're way over time. Uh, so I'm just going to run through a bunch of stories and ask if anybody wants to say something about them. It's uh, closing time at the singles bar. The uh, Chinese owner of Grinder has been told, you must sell uh, your interest in uh, uh, Grinder by the middle of 2020. And in the meantime, you can't get any of the data. Um, I don't see any, uh, uh, you know, it is a relatively uh, rare assertion of CFIUS's power, but it's not unprecedented. I did something the same when I was in government. Uh, um, so uh, there it is. Uh, it just shows uh, one more step down the road of we don't care what China thinks, we're going to do whatever we think is in our national interest. Uh, Canada, the same. They're... Uh, uh, they're looking to find social media uh, for uh, uh, allowing inappropriate content to uh, 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 go up. And uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, described uh, the uh, uh, anti-Islamic uh, uh, guys that he was targeting as normals. Uh, I, I didn't realize that was a word, but apparently it's uh, uh, 
uh, idiots uh, in uh, Quebecois. It's uh, what's happening in Canada is an echo of what's happening in the UK now with an online harms white paper issued by the government. Yeah. And uh, there's going to be more of this. Uh, there is. It's it's kind of astonishing to me and disconcerting considering my general view of the French that the French are much more moderate on this than any of the English-speaking countries or Germany. Uh, uh, Macron is is more sensible on these topics than um, uh, the English-speaking world uh, or con- the rest of continental Europe. It's uh, it's a big surprise. Um, uh, speaking of continental Europe, uh, the EU says they're going to impose sanctions or they have authority to impose sanctions for cyber attacks. I thought that was interesting, Matthew. Uh, and uh, But again, it's sort of like the, uh, the president's executive order. This is our process for doing it. We haven't decided. And every target we pick is going to require unanimity among the members. 28. Yeah, exactly. All You're 28, right. including uh, <laughs> uh, Orban's Hungary and uh, Italy and uh, Greece. Uh, if uh, Putin can't find a friend in that crowd, uh, I'd be astonished. And the same for the Chinese. Uh, so I, whether there really will be uh, sanctions is a different question. Nick, you persuaded me that this is just a non-story, uh, uh, but the Apparently, the press is less uh, easily uh, or is more easily fooled, uh, claiming that uh, in leak investigators in the Guantanamo uh, uh, trials sent emails to defense counsel that gave notice essentially through a uh, one by one pixel uh, uh, when it was opened. So that if it was, I would say some- it's not that it was a non story, it's that it was not criminal abuse of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, but it is grossly unethical behavior for a lawyer to do. Yeah, you know, I, I, my, my sense on that is sending something that tells you when somebody has opened it just tells you that the person that you sent it to actually got it. And if they forward it to somebody and somebody else opens it, that's an important consideration uh, if you're investigating leaks. So, I'm, I, I and at the same time, I believe there are bar decisions in New York saying that this is unethical behavior. Okay, I and and um, you know, obviously that doesn't apply directly to uh, uh, federal investigative activity, but it uh, it could have an impact on the individual lawyers who did it. Uh, so, yes, I it is. Uh, I think it's getting treated more aggressively because people are a little sensitive, a little uh, sympathetic to the defense counsel in this case. Uh, um, uh, But it's certainly not unprecedented from a technical point of view. And uh, last but not least, I know that listeners would be disappointed if I did not revive the This Week in Internet Sex Toy Law uh, uh, feature. uh, uh, And I have to say, Oren Kerr, we're going to have to bring him on to explain this uh, um, this was a internet connected, I, you know, uh, there are some things that, uh, maybe if you were around for hoary precedent creation, you just don't get anymore. But apparently there are internet enabled vibrators in which somebody other than the actual, um, personal owner of the vibrator gets to determine what the vibrator does. The question was with the consent of the vibrator yes, owner, yes, or yeah, is you this, have, are you talking about a hacking situation? No, no, you 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 have to uh, provide consent. Well, you know who knows, uh, uh, because this was a lawsuit over collection of that data by the owner, the the manufacturer of the product, 
And the allegation was that this is a wiretap of the owner and her uh, significant other. And the court decision said, well, turning it on, that's just, that's metadata. But the particular pulses that you send, this really, this is, this is, this is like the Seinfeld uh, 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 discussion about the move and the counterclockwise squirrel, that what you do, how you do it, that's content. To be a fly on the wall in the judge's chamber when he talked about this with his or her clerk would have been fascinating. I, uh, yes. Uh, uh, where's Alex Kaczynski when you need him? Uh, or in, uh, we, a, 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 a confused nation turns its eyes to you to clarify uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the meaning of content under, the, under Title Three. All right. Thanks to Eric Emerson uh, uh, for putting up with uh, uh, my descent into Internet sex toy law. To Maury Shank, to Matthew Hyman, and to Nick Weaver, all of whom are used to this sort of thing. Uh, thanks for joining us. This has been episode 264 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please send us, you know, if we get things wrong, uh, you don't have to just suggest new speakers. If we get things wrong, send us notes at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. We will correct them uh, if we agree with you. Uh, watch my Twitter account at Stuart Baker for updates on stories we're thinking about covering and uh, um, offer your views. Uh, uh, we have a new review uh, uh, from uh, Claude Makaleli on Apple Podcasts. I like this podcast overall, but I like to propose a show rule. Stuart cannot interrupt Nick. Nick, this is... uh, uh, Have you been posting as Claude Makaleli? I I cringe when Nick was talking sense and Stuart blurted out yet another attention-seeking opinion. Yeah, well, we we certainly did that today. Thanks to uh, Christy Jorge, our producer, Doug Pickett, our audio engineer, Michael Beaver, our assistant and editor, and I'm Stuart Baker, your host, chief provocateur and interrupter with uh, attention-seeking opinions uh, uh, of Nick Weaver, uh, who is our commenter's favorite uh, participant. Please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, and privacy. Thank you.